morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be together again this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 73. That's on page, should be on page 485 in the black hardback Bible in front of you, in one of those chairs in front of you. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can grab one of those. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to take one of those home as a gift from us to you. Uh, we are going to be looking at Psalm 73 as we read this morning. And um, it's a privilege, once again, to be able to uh, to preach um, and, and preach God's word this morning. We'll start off by um, maybe drawing our attention to the value of Psalm 73. I was texting with uh, David Burnett this week about Psalm 73, and he mentioned something, that, and it got me to thinking um, about how devastating polio was when polio was was uh, was sweeping the globe it was a debilitating uh, it was a debilitating disease uh, it was it was an awful disease it was affecting children it was crippling people it, uh, lots of pain involved in this and the world was terrified and and we don't have to leap too far to be able to to, to kind of feel what that felt like really do we I mean just a couple of years ago uh, when when covid was given a name and uh, it was sweeping the globe and people were terrified. And what, what was immediately one of the things that immediately uh, became the, the the main priority a vaccine. Find a vaccine. Find, they did everything they could to 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 uh, to find a vaccine. And when Jonas Salk invented the vaccine for polio, it pretty much eradicated that awful disease. It's so important to find that vaccine. And today in Psalm 73, we are looking at a vaccine. So we have a very prominent religion that masquerades as Christianity and it's affecting the contemporary church today. It's called the prosperity gospel or the name it, claim it gospel or the uh, health, wealth and prosperity gospel. And it says that the closer that you are to God, the more blessed you'll be with health Wealth and prosperity. Your life will be immune to trouble. For those who please God, he'll pour out his material blessings on them so much that their cups runneth over. And they'll, they'll uh, quote scripture and misquote scripture to, to basically uh, stack up um, the, the validity of what this false religion is. And if there was ever a vaccine... For the prosperity gospel, it's Psalm 73. Now, certainly there is the book of Job that we see in in the Bible and how uh, Job would would be a a suitable vaccine for the prosperity gospel. Certainly the gospel itself of Jesus going to the cross and suffering uh, mocking and shame and humiliation and suffering uh, at the hands of sinners, that would be. Certainly a vaccine as well for the prosperity gospel. We're going to focus on Psalm 73 today. And I want us to, I've got it divided into three parts and I titled the sermon, When Good Things Happen to Bad People. When Good Things Happen to Bad People. Because really in the first part of this sermon, uh, we're going to talk, look at the problem. There's a problem that exists in Psalm 73. It's a problem that exists in life. It's the shalom of the wicked. So in verses 1 through 12, 
We're going to that's we're going to look at the shalom of the wicked. What is the shalom? The shalom is the overall prosperity and the overall peace and the overall wholeness that God's people were longing for and that God longed for his people. And as a matter of fact, if you were to look at Psalm 72, which is the last psalm of book number two, and all of the psalms were were certainly uh, put together in a certain way. Uh, strategically, and Psalm 72 is actually a prayer that God's people would experience shalom, that God's people would be given by the king the shalom of God, the, the, pre, the, the overall wholeness and wellness and prosperity and peace. And that's how the second book ends. But the book three, the third book, the third collection of psalms that they've put together, it appears that the shalom of God on his people does not exist. It actually seems to say that if it exists, it exists for the wicked. And that's a problem. It's a problem that Psalm 73 verses 1 through 12 highlight. He starts off by saying, truly God is good to Israel. Verse 1. Truly he's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, he's, 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 he's giving us what he, tr- he believes. Truly, I believe this, that God is good to, to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He says, I know you are good, but I can't see it. Here's what I see. And he goes on to delineate what he sees in life. The first thing that he sees is that the wicked are immune to trouble. We're going to kind of move pretty quickly through this this session or this section uh, this part hopefully uh, so they're immune to trouble verses four and five they have no pangs until death their bodies are feet and uh, fat and sleek they are not in trouble as others are they're not stricken like the rest of mankind it seemed like they didn't have struggles in life he was troubled by their immunity to disaster and their immunity to disease it just seemed like they weren't weighed down with all the pressures at work, with, with maybe difficult family dynamics. You name it, the pressures that you sense and the stresses that you sense, the pressures that we feel, it seemed like they didn't experience that. They were immune to trouble. He may have envied their liberty to sin. He says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That word prosperity is the shalom. I saw what was happening with the wicked. You ever, you ever wonder, you, you know, what good, what good is, is trying to honor the Lord really doing for me, for my family? Why am I withholding from taking part in this sin when everyone else is doing it? And it makes their life much more enjoyable. And you might think something like, why am I giving a good portion of my paycheck to the church? Money to the church when my own house is falling apart. Look at my friends or my coworkers, and they're not a part of a church family. They're going out of town on the weekends. They're traveling, enjoying themselves. They have money. They have time and While we're at it, they have the health, they have the good looks, they have the nice truck, they have the perfect kids, they have a picket fence, they have the mini golden doodle that doesn't get attacked by the neighbor's dogs. What's been 
called the seed of disaster has been sown here. And if allowed to grow, it will untie this man, Asaph, from reality and will place him on a slippery slope to ruin. He's beginning to look at that and he's beginning to say, I'm envious of this. In verses 6 through 11, the psalmist subtly shifts the narrative a little bit and will actually help free him from this dark prison that he's about to walk into. He stops talking about what the wicked do not have, namely troubles and their uh, and pain. But what as a consequence they do have, a consequence of having no troubles, they actually do have pride. They're arrogant. In verses 6 through 9, you see pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. The, the phrase, the, the, the words there, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with folly. Sounds odd, but it is, he's saying they're, they're arrogant. They're living high on the hog, they're doing great. And they think that they've done it themselves. They swallowed the poison whole. They believe that they were the reason for the incredible success and ease in their life. And they believe they've done it all by their own charisma, by their own skills that they had de- developed on their own, by their own intuition and their own wisdom. And they believe they'd lived incredible lives because they themselves were incredible. And the psalmist looks at that and he's, he's jealous of that. He's pointing out, this can't be. These people believe that they were all that they needed. And so they became proud. And then pride and arrogance actually leads them to hurting others and violence. On those who oppose you, or, or they would, if someone got in your way, these people would just run them over because they were the center of the universe. He was bothered by their arrogance. They hurt others. You see in verses 7 and 8, their eyes and their hearts, their talk and their looks are full of deception. They talk in ways that blaspheme heaven. Their words run amok in verses 8 and 9. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretched through the earth. They're blaspheming heaven. The universe seems to revolve around them. See, they're arrogant. And thirdly, one of the problems that he saw was they were prosperous in their ways. Verse 10 was difficult. It's difficult for translators because if you were paying attention when we read that passage earlier, it says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And translators have a hard time figuring out if his is God's people or if it's the wicked. And and uh, but it I think is best translated uh, that these are God's people that are watching this go down. And they're turning to them. They're turning to them. The Israelites were led to believe that what was the good, that, that that was what the good life was all about. They were watching it before their eyes. They were so impressed with the shalom, the, the wholeness of the wicked, that they turned to them. And here Asaph points us to a common problem. Religious and irreligious people will draw their conclusions about God based on observations they make when they watch the success of wicked and arrogant people. God has revealed himself as good and just, punishing wickedness, rewarding righteousness, rewarding goodness. So why, if God is aware of the wicked, does he not punish them? Not only is he not punishing them, it appears that they're growing in their popularity. Not only that, but they're growing in their wealth. It's not bad, en- it's not bad enough that God doesn't seem to be doing, th- doing anything about it, but he's actually blessing them. And this is bothersome to Asaph. 
He's watching this. He has a real problem. He observes that it doesn't appear to pay, to be honest. He observes that honesty doesn't seem to be the best policy. It doesn't pay to be good. It's, it's the wicked who prosper. Righteousness doesn't prosper. Do you ever find yourself looking over the fence? Thinking to yourself, look at them. They're so carefree. They don't understand what's going on in my life. They, they, couldn't, live, they couldn't live in my shoes for one day. Look at them growing richer and happier and happier by the day. That's what verse 12 is articulating. That glance over the fence and struggling with the desire to just have what they have. Travel like they travel. Have the peace and comfort that they have. There's no sickness in their family. Eat what they want to eat. Play like they play. Relax like they relax. And it brings us to the second part of the text. And that's the struggle. The problem is clear. The shalom of the wicked in verses 1 through 12. But secondly, the struggle in verses 13 through 22. This is almost a, a wrestling. This, this guy is wrestling with what he's watching. Verse 13 should actually begin with the word truly. It's in the original text. It says truly. He says truly or surely as the Hebrew starts with a. It's an emphatic word in verse 1. He starts with truly, and really it should be here too. Surely, he says in verse 1, God is good to those who are pure in heart. He says up front, I know it to be true. You know it to be true. God's people knows they know it to be true that God is good to Israel, and he's good to those who are pure in heart. But what I'm watching doesn't add up to that. Verse 13 Surely all in vain have I kept my heart clean. Surely. Devoting myself wholeheartedly to God is a waste of time. Truly in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see the psalmist, we're watching him come to a point of decision in this. He's on the very edge of, edge of giving up on life. The life of faith. He's talking it out. And I'm glad he did. That he's talking it out for us to be able to hear. He's saying, I've seen so much in this life. And from my point of view, I can't tell that it makes a bit of difference to live a life of faith. I know that I said, truly God is good to the pure in heart. But from where I'm standing, I can't say that I witnessed that happening. I worked hard to live a pure life. I do my best to honor the Lord and care for His people. I want to be pure in heart, but you know what I've experienced for being pure in heart? Affliction. Verse 14, all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. It's not like that affliction is an outlier event. It's morning by morning continuously. He's rebuked every morning. He can't seem to catch a break. He says, but here I go again. I'm washing my hands and confessing my sins and I'm trying to honor the Lord. All the while, the ones who could care less about God are prospering. They've got the peace. They've got the wholeness. They're the ones that God is giving the shalom to. It's it's like God is giving all of his goodness away to those who are not pure in heart. So if God is really good, 
Surely he will bless those who are pure in heart with good things. You would think so, but he doesn't. That's what he's thinking. And so he must make a decision. Is he going to put his hands to the plow and press on? Is he going to give up? Go back inside where the party is and the air conditioning is and enjoy life. Is it wrong for him to feel this way? After all that he saw, was it wrong to feel that way? Asaph is telling us, this is how I felt. I, I, envied their, I envied the wicked. I envied their ways. I envied the ease of life that they had. He watched it all go down. And thankfully, he was honest about how he responded to this incongruity between what he said he believed and what he was watching. Everywhere he looked. David Ash says this about it. He says, if we pretend that we do not feel what this believer felt, then we are playing with fire. For these desires lurk in all of us. If we pretend that we do not feel what this believer felt, then we're playing with fire because these desires lurk in all of us. And thankfully, he was honest and he brought us along this journey. I believe it's informative for us. Actually, he tells us how not to respond when we watch the wicked. When we watch them being immune to trouble, walking in arrogance, prospering in all of their ways, growing in popularity, growing in wealth. Here are two things that we should not do according to the text. Number one is envy the wicked. He envied their prosperity. He begins to think, well, if only I could drive a car like that or I had that kind of money or traveled incredible places like that. This is, these are the thoughts that may come to your minds. Brothers and sisters, Proverbs 23, 17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Do you know that companies are spending millions of dollars to get you and me to buy the American dream, the nice cars, nice clothes, nice homes and nice toys, freedom to travel wherever you want to travel, to take the world by the tail. Unfortunately, we have a very prominent religion, the prosperity gospel that I mentioned that masquerades as Christianity. It only feeds into this envy, envying the wicked. It feeds into that. That's what's so wicked about this. It says the closer you are to God, the more you'll be blessed with health and wealth and popularity. Your life will be immune from trouble, too. Those who you really want to please God, then give your money and he'll pour out material blessings on you so much. And sadly, the biggest prosperity gospel churches are in the poorest communities around the world. Even one of our mission partners, King Jesus Church in Busega, Uganda, just outside of Kampala. Very poor community. There is a prosperity gospel church one mile from King Jesus Church. Creflo Dollar pastors a church in College Park, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. He runs a multi-million dollar ministry, owns multiple luxury jets, And he does it in the suburb of Atlanta where the average income is $24,000. The average household income is $39,000. He gets rich off of buying into this, getting them to buy into this, to envy that. Telling them, you can be 
wealthy. You should be. And you can have a clean bill of health. Just jump through the right hoops for God. He's, he's feeding religious people this envy of the wicked. Psalm 73 is a vaccine against the prosperity gospel. And it's a blunt reminder to not envy the wicked, no matter how successful they may be. Number two, how not to respond when you're struggling with this, when when what you believe is not matching up with what you're watching play out before your eyes is to grow bitter towards God. In verses 21 and 22, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. After years and years of struggling with this mental quandary. The discrepancy between God's word and what he was watching happen in life. How the wicked, in his perception, were being blessed by God. He speaks here as one who's been physically impacted. His heart, his soul was embittered. He was tempted to be cynical towards God. When he watched the prosperity of the wicked and saw how his own family was coming apart at the seams through adversity or sickness or poverty, it made him sick to his stomach. I haven't said much about Asaph up to this point, but this is a psalm of Asaph. He was the son of Berechiah, one of the doorkeepers of the Ark of the Covenant. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem around 995 B.C., Asaph was gifted musically, and David knew this. And so he put Asaph in in charge of, of leading worship. He wrote music, and he led out in the worship and praise in the temple courts. Asaph was assisted by his brother Zechariah. So this was a godly family. Berechiah, Then Asaph and Zechariah, all serving the Lord and serving God's people, giving years and years and years. You see generations of giving themselves to God and his people. But Asaph's brother, Zechariah, spoke out against Solomon for his wickedness. And Solomon's agents murdered Zechariah in the temple courts where Asaph went to work every day. Well, we can't be sure many people believe that Psalm 73 was written after his brother was murdered. So you can see why his soul might have been embittered. This is a legendary family who loved the Lord and his people. And what does he get for that? A murdered brother. Stricken all day. Rebuked every morning. Verse 14. Is it a wonder that he was struggling with bitterness towards God? Can any of you relate? You're watching what's happening and you know you're struggling. You know your family's struggling and you've got your own stress and anxiety and pain and discouragement and loneliness and sickness. And it leads us to the same place that led Asaph, tempted to give up. Truly, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Have you grown envious of the wicked's immunity to pain and trouble? Have you become bitter towards God because you've sacrificed so much for God and for his church and for your church family? Yet you only seem to receive hardship in return and the godless around you. They seem to be prospering. Have you wondered if all of this was in vain? Do you believe That the Lord Jesus struggled with these thoughts. 
I mean, surely, surely not. I mean, wouldn't that be irreverent for the Lord Jesus to struggle with this? But Jesus was a singer of the Psalms. He sang these Psalms. God's people sang these songs. So what would it mean for the Lord Jesus to have sung this psalm? The psalms were inspired by the Spirit of Christ. So He must have sung this song. Is it irreverent to think of the Lord Jesus meditating on and singing verses 2 through 12 through the, the, the frightening journey, 2 through 14, where He's looking at it all? I don't think it's irreverent. He was tempted in ways much greater than you and I will ever be able to imagine. And he felt this temptation with great intensity. Asaph, speaking on behalf of God's people, points our gaze at the horizon and to see Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who knew what it was to feel the temptation to give up, yet for the joy set before him endured the cross. All the kingdoms of the world, with their prosperity and comfort, were offered to Jesus by the deceiver, by Satan. say, surely he didn't, but he didn't envy the wicked, but surely he must have envied the comfort, the easy way out, the comfort and the ease, the immunity to pain that the, the wicked seemed to have, and yet he did not. He was without sin. Listen to how Isaiah 49 gives us the ability to peer into the thoughts of Jesus. It's talking about the servant in Isaiah 49. And 49 verse 6 says this about the servant of the Lord, about Jesus. He says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense, my recompense with my God. So let Asaph and the Lord Jesus lead us to the right response when we're tempted to want that. And the right response, what was it? It was bring it to God and to His people. How do you respond when you're wrestling with this? How do you respond when you're struggling with what you're seeing and what you're believing and you're just thinking, something doesn't add up. I don't get it. What's the proper response? The, the proper response is not to bottle it up. It's to bring it to God and God's people. Bring it out into the open, into the light of the truth. Don't suppress it. Be honest. Christopher Ash concludes, he says, we need to follow in the footsteps of the writer of Psalm 73 and of the Lord Jesus Christ and his temptations to trace this journey of honest anguish. We need to bring these thoughts and desires out into the open to place them as they are placed in this psalm under the banner headline of verse 1. That God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and bring it into the presence of God. Better to bring them out and look at them in the clear light of truth, which is what the psalmist does. Note that this, the psalmist struggled. He struggled with the, the problem of good things happening to bad people. Look at verse 15 with me again. He says, it says, if I had said... I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. One commentator, I think, helpfully points out that the key to this psalm is to read verse 15 in Christ. 
This is a believing representative of the people of God. And he's speaking by the spirit of Christ. So when he says, I would have betrayed your children, what could that have meant? That's a pretty big deal, wouldn't you say? To betray is a serious accusation. Betrayal actually endangers people. And this betrayal would echo beyond the moment. He's saying it would hurt generations. In some way, the faithfulness of this man matters for the destiny of the people of God. Do you see Christ here? For some reason, it matters tremendously that he should not tip over the edge of unbelief and into skepticism. The skepticism of verse 13, that all in vain, I've kept my heart clean. And if he goes down this slippery slope, it's not just this one man that's going to suffer. It's generations that are going to suffer. The destiny of others somehow rests in the continuing faithfulness of this man. I believe we're intended to see Christ. And so we have a front seat here, front row seat to watch this man wrestle with this, to understand the good things happening to bad people, the prosperity of the wicked and the sufferings of the believer. And what does he do? He brings it to God and to his people. And in verse 17, it says, in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, that I dis- then I discerned their end. He enters the sanctuary, the temple, where the two tablets of the law in the, uh, in the Ark of the Covenant were, the altar of sacrifice, the mercy seat, all the signs of God's faithful covenant to His people, His promises to His people. Asaph is a Levite with temple duties. And it's when he sees and he meditates on the covenant that he says, I understood their final destiny. He hears afresh, perhaps, God's promise to bless those who would bless him and curse those who curse him. And what is he reminded of? Look at what he's reminded of, verses 18 and 19. He's reminded of the complete devastation and ruin that the wicked will experience. Complete devastation. It will all come crashing down around them. He says in verse 18, you make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, exclamation point. Terrors of God's judgment will come upon them. They will in a flash realize that they have most horribly been in the wrong. All the mocking words that they had towards heaven and towards God and towards his people, all the mocking words they realize when they meet God face to face, that they were saying them all right to his face. All the ways they took advantage of others in order to get what they wanted, all the violence they perpetrated on others, all the malicious, vile, vindictive actions that they have taken, they will realize in one moment that the whole time it was against God himself. And they will in a moment be undone. Their terrified eyes will look straight into the face of the righteous judge who will arise, like in verse 20. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They will look in, they will be terrified and they will look in his eyes and they will immediately realize they have no defense. 
They will look at the scars on the hands and the feet of Christ and know that they did that and that their judge stands and is even now pronouncing the guilty verdict. The psalmist gains clarity here. The immunity that the wicked had to trouble, their prosperity and their popularity, it will all come crashing down in a moment. It's temporary. It's a flash in the pan. And he says, when I was thinking about joining them, when I was envious of their life, I was brutish and ignorant. Verse 22. I was, I was like the cattle out there. They're, they're dumb and they're, they're ignorant. They're, they're unfeeling. He says, I can see it clearly now. The wicked will swiftly meet justice and will face total ruin. This was, this was overwhelming enough for him. But God went further. What swept him away was not that God never took his, his eyes off of the wicked and that God never took his eyes off of the righteous and that he would remember the righteous. What blew the psalmist away was not that God would give the wicked what they deserved. What blew him away was that God gave his people, brutish and ignorant as they may be, himself. And that's the third part. The solution. God's presence. God gives us himself. In verse 23, you see how his anxiety is beginning to, to settle. It's all become clear. The dust is settled. He's all, it's, it's all becoming clear to him. He says that God took hold of his right hand. While the psalmist was lost in the darkness of unbelief and teetering on spiritual ruin, the Lord took him by the hand and led him into the light. And what did this mean for him? Verse 26 shows us that his presence is more valuable than health. You're looking, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His presence is more valuable than health. The better translation is, my flesh and my heart fail. Not they might, they fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Dane Ortland put it this way. He says, and I can't improve upon it. He says, consider what Asaph is saying here. With God, you are invincible. Nothing can touch you. Your greatest enjoyment, God, can never be taken away from you. In heaven, God is all you want and need. And need. And, and, and on earth, God is all you want and need. So God gives us Himself and His presence. What does that mean? His presence is more valuable than health. Secondly, His presence is more valuable than riches. So He's given us Himself. What does that mean? His presence is more valuable than health. And secondly, it's more valuable than riches. Verse 26, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Speaking to a friend of mine last night about this text and he pointed out that word portion. thought it was clarifying for me. For most of Israel's history, they lived with a false understanding of God's goodness. They thought that God's goodness was in the material blessings that they enjoyed and the land was everything to them. They praised God for the land. It was a sign of God's blessing and they cherished the promised land more than anything. But Israel was forced to reevaluate God's goodness when the land was taken away. 
Israel had to look at God's goodness a different way when they went into exile. And Psalm 73 was likely written during the exilic period. So uh, a lot of the all the books, all of the Psalms in book three are written uh, from the perspective of someone that's in exile. So he writes in verse 26, 26, my heart, and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word portion was the word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the promised land. What Israel thought was the blessing of the covenant. But now that he lost everything, the psalmist realizes that the blessing of God was never the land. The, the real blessing of God was himself. The reward that the righteous receive from God is not things. The reward the righteous receive from God is God. He gave himself for us. So the exile forced them to make a choice. Either God is enough by himself or God will never be enough. And difficult times forced you and me to make the same decision that the psalmist had to make. Either you can be happy with God so long as, you, as, as God gives you the things you want. Or you can be joyful without those things so long as God is the only thing that you want. For the psalmist, after losing everything, he realized that all he ever really wanted was God. Friend, have you embraced the good news that God has given himself for you? It's an offer. It's an offer that every Christian has to be reminded of often. Every week we come in here to remind ourselves of the giving of God's Son to us, for us. God spared nothing to bring you to Himself. He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that you could not live, a perfect life of obedience, and to die a death that He did not deserve, and yet you and I deserve. The death of a sinner, and He died in your place. Absorbing the wrath of God for you. The ultimate ruin that the wicked experience swiftly does not have to be yours. If you just reach out in faith to trust that Christ indeed died for your sins. And God raised him up on the third day. Jesus is now in heaven and he's praying for you at the right hand of the Father. And he stands ready to forgive. So God gives us himself. Secondly, we see that God guides us with his counsel. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. This actually should call us to mind the counsel that we read about in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but he delights in the law of the Lord. Some of you may wonder, I've been reading my Bible for a while now. You may feel like it's a very dry season for you reading God's word. And you may be wondering, is it really doing anything in my heart or is it doing anything in my life? And I don't I don't sense God guiding me. It's doing more than, you know. One of my favorite quotes is John Piper. God is doing a thousand different things in your lives at any point, And we're only aware of a few of them. God's word is working. His word will not return void in your life. Keep disciplining yourself to open God's word and to read it. And this is how he walks with you through this life. It's how he guides you in life. 
His word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Even when we are brutish and ignorant and struggling in the dark. We exhort you to trust what God says, not what you see. It's one of the exhortations from this. To trust what God says, not what you see. So God guides us with his counsel. Thirdly, God will never leave our side, even in death. There's nothing greater than this. Verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Dane Ortland again says in death and in life, in sickness and in health, even as your body wastes away toward the grave, God is all you want and all you will ever need. Be at peace. Your true happiness is beyond the reach of any everlasting this life can bring. So God will never leave our side, even in death. If you really believe that, how would that affect your life this week? How would it affect the way that you view relationships and your suffering? God will never leave you alone. He will never leave your side, even in death. Fourth, God alone will satisfy. God alone will satisfy. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Understood in the context of the psalm, when he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The Spirit of Christ is reminding us that all the things that you thought you wanted, when you looked over the fence, all the things that you saw and you thought, those are the things that I want, you really don't want those. You really want God. The psalmist does not want the things that the wicked seek to gain. What we've seen here is a journey of this psalmist who's been freed from all of those desires. You see that? He's taken us on this journey. He said, I thought about it. I, I wanted those things. And now he says, oh, he's with me. He's never going to leave me. He's given me himself. He's received freedom from all of those desires. This is the jailbreak. He's free to go. He only wants God. And if he enjoys God, then there is nothing else to be desired. Jim Hamilton said, God alone will satisfy all longings for pleasure, all your longings for influence, for power, for status, for anything else for which the wicked seem to enjoy so much. You see how God alone will satisfy all those things you thought you wanted. And he, you can receive freedom from all those desires when you recognize that God is with you and he is the only one who will truly satisfy you. What will God give you in darkness? He will give you light. What will God give you in weakness? He'll give you strength. What will God give you in sadness? He'll give you joy. What will God give you in storms? He will give you peace. What will he give you in your confusion? Counsel. These are byproducts of God giving you himself and he will satisfy. Lastly, what I see here. God's presence fixes our perspective. At the beginning of the psalm, he says, truly, God is good. But he goes on to say, I, I can't see it. 
I have a hard time seeing it. I, I, I'm watching this and I'm having a hard time accepting that God is good to those who are pure in heart. But what changed on this journey? Did all of a sudden he start receiving good things from the Lord? Did all of a sudden he start receiving the blessings from God? All the things that he had desired, is he beginning to get those things? No, he's not. Certainly God didn't change. This man's perspective changed. The lens with which he viewed everything in life had changed. And so he was changed. Some of you who have gone to the optometrist for your eyesight would be able to experience this, that the doctor, his job is to help you see better. And then you go through this process where they give you different lenses so that you can see clearly. Left on your own, you would not be able to view anything clearly. But he finally gives you the right lens to which you can clearly see. Everything becomes clear. Left on your own with God, in this world, and as you look over the fence, you can't see it clearly. Left on your own, you'll just want it. You'll just envy it. You'll become like them. But the presence of God in your life allows you to see the world for what it really is. Verses 27 and 28, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God judges the wicked. Yes. What sweeps the psalmist away? The giving of God himself. We should thank God for his blessings, but treasure him more than all of those blessings. In verse 28, he actually uses that word tell. It's, it's actually recounting. I, it, it, and it's, it's the same word that's used in verse 15 when he said, I will speak thus. If I would have said, if I would have, if I had said, I will speak thus. Literally, he's saying, if I would have recounted everything I'm seeing, he's saying, if I had watched it all go down and decided what was the ultimate shalom, the ultimate happiness, Pursue pleasure and riches and popularity. Shun God and mock the heavens. He won't ever know. That's one message he could have proclaimed. He says, if I recounted it all that way, then I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But why didn't he recount it like that? Verse 28. For me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may recount or tell of all of your works. He could have accepted and preached two different messages. What did he decide? He had made his decision. He looked at it all. Then he looked at God. And he decided he would have rather he would rather have Jesus than silver or gold. What about you? Given what Asaph presents, what would you rather have? If God gave you everything you could ever have wanted in life, everything you looked over the fence and just thought, I, that, would, that would make my life complete. If He gave you all of that, but if He withheld Himself from you, would you be happy? As for me, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. 
Can you say that I'd rather be his than have riches untold? I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world affords today. Pray that that would be your decision as well. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this psalm and we praise you that we got to see a journey here. And we also get to see Christ in here and His faithfulness to us. That for the joy set before Him, He he endured the, the scorn and the humiliation of the cross. Father, help us to fix our eyes on Him. God, help us to long for Your embrace and Your counsel. Thank you that you will never leave us even into death. And Father, I pray for our church family. Many struggling, many hurting. And God, would you help us to view all of life through the lens of you are, you are with us and you'll never leave us and you'll never forsake us. And we love you, Lord. And I pray these things in Christ's name and by your spirit. Amen.